0: Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. The prophecy of the Lord through Malachi, his servant. It is the last book of the the Old Testament in the English translation of the Bible, so if you don't know where to find it, go to Matthew and then go backwards. Malachi's prophecy to the people of Israel. Now, we will journey through this book, I believe, over the next nine or ten weeks, and there were there were a few things I think that led to to coming to this book at at this time. Um, chiefly, I, in praying as I was finishing studying in First Peter, um, I picked up my Bible one day and read through this this short prophecy, and the Lord just laid it on my heart that this would be something to put before the people of God here at Grace Covenant. So. Uh, I think this is from the Spirit of God to us, His church, today. Um, When you consider Old Testament writings, Malachi is unique in a sense. Um, It's very straightforward. Uh, It's almost like a New Testament epistle in that it's very didactic. It's very instructive. We're not going to have to do a lot of digging. We're not going to have to take... 40-plus verses to, to get a story, but we can kind of take a paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph approach and, and be instructed um, by the Lord through His Word in a way that will, will press us in our walks but also will bring us into the, the Old Testament, the, the first half of the story of redemptive history. Um, there are even, I believe, uh, we'll get to this in a moment, there are some tie-ins between Malachi and First Peter, which we just finished studying, um, you remember in First Peter we talked a lot about being sojourners and pilgrims, and there's a very direct and distinct tie-in from that idea to what's going on in the days of Malachi. So um, we're going to look today at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and uh, we'll title this The Faithful Love of God. The Faithful Love of God, and that really applies to the entire four chapters that we see here in Malachi. That could be a title of the entire study because in these four chapters, that is exactly what we see, the ins and outs of the faithful love of God for his people. Um, At the end of Malachi, the Lord went silent. Uh, At the end of Malachi and maybe a couple other prophecies, at the close of the Old Testament Scripture, the Lord went silent to His people. And and there's some weight, I think, in that too, Uh, just just to know that this is kind of the Lord's final word to His people before He brings about the Messiah. So let's turn our attention to the text, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'll ask as we read our text that you please stand with me as we give honor and attention to the reading of the Lord's Word. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This is the holy and inerrant and inspired Word of God. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now, please join with me, and let's go before the Lord's throne of grace and ask Him to help and bless our time as we study His words. Let's pray. Our Father, You are in the heavens, and You do exactly as You please. You are sovereign. You are all-powerful. You are in control of all things. You are holy. And just and righteous, you're merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, every time we move to a, a new book of your scriptures, it, it feels like we're embarking on a new journey, or a journey whereby you take us and lead us. instruct us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in how we should live so Lord that is my prayer for us your people that through the teaching and preaching through the authority of your word the authority that your word alone has that we would be shown our sin that our hearts would be humbled, that we would be brought to repentance. Pray, Lord, that you would show us Christ. Pray that you would show us our desperate need for a Savior. Lord, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, all of that happens through your working In your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and move powerfully among us, for the workings of men are so utterly helpless in this endeavor. If we are to hear from your word in in our own strength, we will fall short and we will fail. But Lord, if your spirit would come and move among us, we might be strengthened and empowered. Go out from here as warriors who are ready to shake the very gates of hell as we preach and proclaim and live for Christ. Lord, would you do that in us? Would we understand that this is a battle, that this is a war, that we must stand firm and resist the devil, we must resist temptation, we must resist the flesh, and we must understand the great price that was paid for our redemption the precious blood of Christ at the cross so lord would you show us christ would you work in our hearts would you work in our minds would you work in our lives so that we might live in such a way that is pleasing and honoring And acceptable to you. We pray that your name would be magnified and glorified through all that we do as we are gathered to worship today. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin our study of the book of Malachi, we really need to take some time to to set the stage, to set the context, to set the audience, and kind of have a a little bit of a big-picture look At what is going on? Um, This is a declaration of the Lord to his people through Malachi. You could say that this is God's word to God's people through God's messenger. God's word to God's people through God's choice, instrument, and messenger. That man was Malachi. What was going on in the days of Malachi? Again, this is some. 400, 450 years perhaps before the the coming of Christ. And so the people of Israel had been freed and returned from their Babylonian exile and captivity. They had returned to their homeland. They had returned to the promised land, but really they were not at this point free. The Persians were ruling and in power in that day, and the Persians ruled harshly. They caused much hardship and much suffering for the people of God, though they were living in what was their home and promised land. Suffering at the hands of harsh rulers sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you have any knowledge of the history of Israel, the history of God's people in the Old Testament, your mind might very quickly go to understanding what was their response. To the suffering and to this hardship. They they were a grumbling people. They were a people who lacked hearts of thanksgiving. They were a people who lacked joy and were really even led to hard-heartedness anytime things got rough. Anytime things didn't go their way and sometimes even when things were going their way, they were driven to being hard-hearted and ungrateful people. This was the mark of Israel throughout Their history in the Old Testament, the Lord would rescue, the Lord would deliver, the Lord would give blessing, and then very quickly, very quickly, their hearts would turn. Their hearts would be hardened. They would run down deep into this trail of ingratitude, or they would look at the nations and the peoples around them and want to be like those around them. They wanted to be like the world. Friends, far be it from us to be like Israel. As we work through this prophecy over the next couple or few months, let's keep that in our minds and on our hearts that while we can sit back and, and judge these people, while we can sit back and look and say, Oh, we we would never have done that if the Lord was directly leading us by a pillar and and by fire, and He was parting the Red Sea for us to cross safely, we never would have been ungrateful. If our leader was up on the mount receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, we would never make for ourselves an idol to worship. Dear friend, let's remember, as John Calvin said, that the human heart is a factory of idols. We make idols. We run so quickly into sin. So, yes, we see the whole of Israel and we understand that they could have been a hard-hearted, obstinate, stubborn, stiff-necked people. But, dear friends, if not for the grace of God and His Spirit living and working in and among us, we would be the exact same. This is the battle for the Lord's people in every age, to live devoted to to the Lord, to to seek after joy, to walk in joy and thanksgiving in spite of whatever circumstances may be going on around us. We must remember the Lord's providing hand. As you walk through trials, I've been reminded of this the last several months. Um, If you ever listen to John Piper, one thing you're almost bound to hear him say is that you have to fight. Joy. You have to fight for joy. That's what Israel never accomplished. It's what they never did. They were so quick to forget the Lord's blessing and the Lord's kind providence and the Lord's redemption and rescue of them. And it led to hard-heartedness. But not only did it lead to this, this ingratitude, these unthankful hearts, but it also led to impurity of life led to impurity of heart and impurity of deed. That's one thing that we see throughout Malachi is that these people, not only were they just stubborn and hard-hearted, but they ran into sin. They lacked devotion to the Lord because of the hardness of their hearts, and they ran into all kinds of sin. The way that Israel worshiped the Lord in this day, the Lord hated. He rejected He rejected the priest. He rejected the worship of the people. The Lord had much instruction to bring these people because of their impure hearts and their impure living. So we ask ourselves this question as we work through the book of Malachi. Do do the circumstances of our lives, do difficulties, do they lead us down a road of, of lacking and missing joy? And and do they lead us down a road of impurity? Impurity in thought and impurity in deed. Do we lack the devotion to the Lord to walk with Him in spite of difficult circumstances? Do we lack the devotion and and the understanding of the Lord's sovereignty over all things to, to miss out on His blessing when you walk in a season of blessing and plenty and joy and goodness. Do you remember to stop and thank the Lord and praise Him and walk joyfully because it's the Lord who brings and gives good things to His people? Israel did not. Do we? Do we acknowledge the Lord and His goodness in all times? Ultimately, this prophecy ends with the promise of the coming Messiah. And you think about that. The people are unfaithful. The people are walking in obstinate sin. Uh, the back and forth throughout this prophecy is just remarkable in the hardness of heart that is displayed in the people. And yet God is faithful. God is faithful to his promise to bring about the Savior, he's faithful to his promise to bring about the Messiah to save his people from their sins. Not only did Christ come to save his people from their sins, but there is another coming of Christ, a second coming, a coming where he comes to purify and to judge. And so when we think about the coming Messiah, we look to him as the Savior and the Redeemer, but he's also the judge. He's also the purifier. Turn back to Malachi chapter 4, if you will. In verses 1 through 3 of that final chapter of Malachi, really I think serve as a great kind of summary, a great overview of the the ground that we're going to cover over the next weeks. the Lord says here, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. They will be utterly destroyed. But, the Lord says, verse 2, For you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So you have that that dual purpose, the victory of the redeemed, and the utter ruin and condemnation of the arrogant and evildoers. Just stop right there and say, friend, that day is coming. That day is coming. Are, Are you among the arrogant and the evildoers? Are you among those who fear the name of the Lord? What does it mean to fear God? that you revere Him. You see Him as great and wonderful and powerful and almighty, and you fear Him by placing your trust and your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You understand that Jesus took on human flesh. He left the heavens, the presence of the glory of His Father. He came to His creation. He walked in obedience. He did not ever commit a sin and then he was nailed to a cross, and the certificate of debt of the penalty of your sin was nailed to Christ on that cross. And Christ said, it is finished. The work is done. All that's left for a lost soul to have saving hope in Christ is that you come to him in faith. You believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Faith comes with repentance. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. You don't come to Christ in faith and then remain in your sin. You, are, you go through the new birth where the Lord brings new life into you. The old things, the deeds and the desires of the flesh are gone, and you put on the new self. The Lord puts on the new self. You put on Christ. So that day is coming, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Will you, you be found on that day in Christ, or will you be found on that day standing in your own sin and standing upon the condemning merit of your sinful life? So we've just finished, back on task, we've just finished our study of First Peter. And as I said earlier, Peter... Often talked about and wrote in such a way to remind us that we are strangers in this world, we are aliens, we are sojourners, we are pilgrims, we are on a journey. This world, praise the Lord, is not the end for those who are in Christ, and, and that was kind of the the main or a main running theme in the book of Peter. And so, now you're probably saying, what does that have to do with Malachi? Well. In reading, um, there's a website I use that will bring together a bunch of different resources, and I found this really interesting from John Piper, John Piper's introduction to the book of Malachi. Piper said that the great temptation for Israel in the Old Testament and for the church of Christ today is to forget that we are pilgrims and not natives in this world. Piper continued, the temptation is to let the Lord's delay make us settle into the world and become passive as we wait. To forget that we are aliens and exiles, sojourners, strangers on the earth, seeking another homeland, desiring and yearning a better country. So what that has to do with Israel is that was really the part of the root sin of the people. They came back to their promised land and they wanted all the blessing that the Lord had promised in the here and now. They had a temporal focus that desired earthly blessing. Dear friends, we must not live for the here and now. We fix our eyes upon Christ and His promise of glory and reward and inheritance when He calls us to Himself in eternity. So, so there's this tie-in that we must remember that, that that's what these people were battling. They, they wanted the Lord's blessing today. They wanted to walk in all of God's favor for the present life. They wanted, as one, um, I'll say speaker today would say, they wanted to live their best life now. And if you live for your best life now, it probably is your best life because the future in eternity is bleak if your hope and life and joy is not in Christ. So let's turn to the text. Uh, Verse 1 is kind of an introduction into the whole of Malachi, and then we'll try to make our way kind of quickly through verses 2 through 5. There's a lot of doctrine in 2 through 5 that we could stop on, but we'll kind of skim over it a little bit. We'll hit it. We'll we'll see the biblical implications of it. but I want to see the whole picture of what um, the Lord is saying here as he's declaring his faithful love to his people. So Malachi begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Oracle was a Hebrew word that um, could be translated, or it was a close derivative of a word that meant burden or weight. It was often used to speak of the burden and the weight of the Lord's judgment. And so there's definitely that flavor, that idea in this prophecy where there is a burdensome weight of the Lord's coming judgment against sin. But that's not all the prophecy is about. This is a hope-filled book. This is about the faithful love of God. But even the faithful love of God is a weighty, burdensome thing. When you think about the the work of God in redemption, what it took to accomplish our salvation, the blessing that is coming in eternity. When you think about the fact that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, even the hope of redemption is a weighty, weighty thing. So this this word is a weighty proclamation, a weighty announcement of the whole Word of God, not only His judgment, but also His redemption. Matthew Henry explains this well. He said that to those who do not repent, this is a burden because it will sink them to the lowest hell. That's because there's accountability. When you hear the truth, when the Lord confronts your sin and you hard-heartedly refuse to repent, you will be sunk so deep into the eternal flames of hell at the final judgment. But Henry continued that to those who love and embrace this word, though it is a light burden, as the Savior calls it, my, my weight, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. He said it's still a burden. It still brings weightiness. There's a weightiness to obedience because you understand the holiness of the Lord You understand his call to be holy just as he himself is holy. So even in the hope, even in obedience, even in walking with the Lord, there's weight. There there is this overwhelming sense of how good and how glorious and how great the Lord is. And how short we fall. But how great is his love. So... We've got this weighty idea, the hope of redemption and the promise of judgment. That's, that's kind of the two courses that will run parallel throughout Malachi's prophecy. There, there is there's rebuke. There is promise of coming judgment. There is promise of condemnation to those who remain in their sin. And there's promise of redemption. There's promise of glory. There's promise of of favor. There's promise of the Lord's blessing. So Malachi then sets out. He sets out to show the love of God. He wants to show the Lord's hatred for sin, and he calls the people to glorify the Lord in light of those things. And as we study the Old Testament, one, one thing that you have to be careful to always do in all of Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, is draw all these truths back to Christ. Everything in Scripture points to Christ in some way or form. And so we have to point this to Christ. We have to see the ultimate fulfillment of these things in Christ. So when the Lord says, Jacob have I loved, the Lord's love for Jacob finds the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Because Christ died, Jacob's sins were forgiven. When he says, Esau, I have hated. The Lord's hatred for Esau is carried out through the judgment that Christ brings because Esau rejected Christ. Christ gives us his spirit. He said, I will send you the helper. He will live in you. That is the spirit of Christ who comes and dwells within us. And it's that spirit of Christ that allows us, as we see in verse 5, to say, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be glorified. If you don't have the Spirit of God living in you, if Christ has not saved you and placed His Spirit in you, you have no desire to glorify God. That is one of the ultimate, really the the ultimate, the easiest check to whether or not you are in Christ. Do you desire the Lord's glory or do you desire your own pleasure? So let's set out then. We've got some time remaining. Let's look at verses 2 through 5, and and kind of the, the main theme here is that we must remember the Lord's faithful love for His people. The faithful love of God for His people is summed up in the person and the work of Christ, and as we remember that, we must glorify Him by living in humble faithfulness. The Lord is faithful, and we respond in faithfulness of our own. So let's look at verse 2 and consider the Lord's divine electing love. Divine electing love. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. So just stop and think about really the Lord's first words in, in in this instruction From Malachi. His first words were, I have loved you. I have loved you. Now, it's very fitting that that phrase is in what is called the perfect tense. It's in the perfect tense, and, and that points us and helps us remember that the Lord's love is perfect. The Lord is perfect, and His love is perfect. There are many ways that we could describe God's love for us, His people. There are many appropriate descriptions to apply, but we begin with that idea that the Lord's love is perfect. His love is eternal. It goes on forever and ever. It's from eternity past to eternity future. It is faithful. If it continues for eternity, it must also be faithful. The Lord's love for His people is a saving love. While there is nothing good in you, The Lord sent His Son to die for you. The Lord's love we will surely see is patient and forgiving. He's patient and forgiving because we are still sinners. We still battle against the flesh, and yet the Lord in His patient, forgiving love is bearing with us. He reveals sin to us. He leads us to repentance and He forgives. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Lord's love is unconditional. It's based on nothing you've done. If it was based on anything you've done, there would be no love of God for you because all you do apart from Christ is sin and love your sin and revel in your sin. So God's love, if He places His love on you, it must therefore be unconditional. The Lord's love is comforting. Do you know the comfort of God's love? The the comfort that the God of all creation has... If you are His child, He has loved you from eternity past. And His love, exercised through His grace and His mercy it will bring and lead you to your eternal home. That's a comforting love. And lastly, as we see in the text, it is electing. It's a choosing love. It's the love by which the Lord sets apart a people to be His possession. All of these aspects of God's love have been clearly, clearly displayed to the people of Israel. Think about their history again. We're we're nearing the end of the Old Testament. All of these things, all of these ways that the Lord has loved his people have been so plainly displayed to his people. Think about how the Lord set apart Abraham. He called him out. He led him to where he wanted to go. He he gave him a son so that his heritage could continue through Isaac about the Lord saving and delivering his people from their slavery and captivity in Egypt. What a remarkable love of God to turn the heart of Pharaoh to let the people go and then to allow them safe passage through the sea. And amidst the constant grumbling and complaining, the Lord's love always continued. His love was known It was remarkably known and seen by Israel. Dear friends, let's remember, we have the whole of God's revelation to see and understand that love. So that love is displayed for us. That love finds its ultimate consummation for us in the cross of Christ. We know and we have seen the love of God. He loves perfectly. So he says, I have loved you. And then what happens immediately? Look at, look at the text. It says, they immediately respond, but you say, how have you loved us? Okay, we just recounted the, the history of Israel. They knew how the Lord had loved them. What a slanderous, blasphemous slap in the face to the Lord God Almighty who had set these people apart to be His chosen people out of all the world. And they say, but but how have you loved us? How have we known your faithfulness? How have we seen your provision? It's blasphemous. It's arrogance. It's sinful. But let us remember, if we fail to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of gratitude, a heart that understands the blessing of the Lord, a heart that pursues joy, we will quickly be on that same path. When things start getting rough, our response, if we have not prepared ourselves, our response is going to be like Israel. Lord, how have you loved us? Where is your presence? Where is your word? How are you showing yourself faithful? God says, I have loved you. I have been faithful to you. I have provided for you eternally. So when we hear this, may we never doubt. And we never question the Lord's goodness or His love for His people. We must fight to understand and to know the goodness and the love of God and to walk in it and to rest in it. The Lord has loved us for a reason. There is a purpose in this love of God. He didn't just love us so that we could be saved, but remain in our sin. In John 15, he said, we read this a moment ago, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. The Lord shows us how to love. Love one another as I have loved you. In John 14, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The Lord has shown us how to love. He's shown us how to love one another. He calls us to love him. He calls us to love him so that we keep his commandments. In keeping his commandments, we glorify him. That's the ultimate connection. That's the ultimate link. He has loved us so that we will live in a way that brings him glory. So again, let's not sit in judgment of Israel, but let's re- respond with humble hearts, with humble hearts that seek to be obedient and devoted to the Lord. So it's a divine love of God, but it's also an electing love of God. He says, well, it was not Esau, Jacob's brother, yet I have loved J- Jacob and Esau I have hated. It's an electing love, two brothers, one loved and one hated. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we can see this love of God as an electing love in verses 10 through 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Rome. He says, not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, and not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve, the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Do you see that in Scripture? God's love elects and chooses, not based upon merit it's not based on anything good or anything bad that they had done but it was because of his choice because of his election because he desired to set his affection on a specific person upon a specific people now the response to this doctrine of election can can be varied it can be broad um Oftentimes, it can just lead to high-minded theology where we just sit and discuss these, these ideas of theology and doctrine and don't do anything with them. You'll also have people that grow angry or frustrated or upset with you. This can lead to much discussion and uh, much debate. But there's really only one appropriate response. When you consider the eternally electing love of God, There's but one response, and that is the response of humble, submissive, joyful worship. Humble, submissive, joyful devotion. Uh, We can talk about theology. We can study theology. We can love the fact that we believe in election. We should love the fact that we believe in election because it's a glorious doctrine. But if that doesn't change how you worship that doesn't change how you love the Lord, if that doesn't humble your heart, then it's worthless. It's worthless. If doctrine doesn't change you, it's worth nothing. It adds nothing to your life. All it does is make you a, a big egghead, essentially. You fill your mind with knowledge, and yet that knowledge does nothing for your life. Knowledge doesn't just do nothing for your life, but it puffs up. It brings about pride, spiritual pride, if it doesn't humble you and cause you to desire to obey the Lord. So the Lord has this amazing, divine, electing love for His people. And that love is even magnified moving into verses 3 and 4 as we consider the holy, condemning hate of God. The holy, condemning hate of God. The Lord says, But Esau, I have hated And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may rebuild, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. That's extreme hatred. If we think about the Lord's statement here, that is absolutely extreme hatred of God. But it's just. The Lord is just. He is righteous. He is sovereign. He is the ruler and creator of all things, and the Lord hates sin. The Lord is right to hate sin because sin is an offense to His holy nature and character. God hates sin, and He hates... Hear this very clearly, please. He hates sin, and He hates sinners. He loved us while we were sinners, but to those whom He did not love, He hates eternally. That's why He condemns to hell for all eternity. So to say that He, he hates the sin but loves the sinner really misses at least half of the whole concept of Scripture. Yes, he does love us while we were sinners. But if we don't die to sin and be made alive in righteousness, then he will hate us as sinners. And that hatred will be proven for all eternity. So let's talk about this hatred. Four things I think that we can see about the hatred of God it is personal, it is destructive, or you could say powerful, it is just, and it's eternal. Okay, the, the hatred of God is personal. I have hated Esau. That's personal. I have hated Esau. The Lord says, it is me, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, the, the I am Yahweh, and I hate Esau, this specific person. And now, of course, he hated the people of Esau. He hates all who remain in their sin, but it is a personal direct hatred of the Lord to Esau for the hardness of Esau's heart. Again, we have to understand God is sovereign. As creator and ruler of all things, we have no right to question him. Romans 9 talks about how the clay has no right to question the potter. The clay has no right to question the one who makes it. The clay has no right to to return or to question or to bring charges against its maker. This is part of God's attributes. He has a wrath and a hatred towards sin and evil. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture. And we must understand that the the quicker and the sooner we understand that, the quicker and the sooner the Lord will break us and humble us and then gently lead us on the road of repentance. So his hatred is um, personal. There are things that he hates. Proverbs 6 tells us some things that the Lord hates. He hates haughty eyes. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates wicked hearts and those who quickly pursue evil. He hates those who bear false witness and those who spread strife what does God hate? He hates sinners. He hates those who are given to things like deceit and strife and slander and oppression and hatred and all these things that He commands against. The Lord hates those things, and He hates the people who practice them. The Lord's love is also destructive, It's powerful against those that he hates. He says this about Esau, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. He destroyed the mountains and the inheritance of Esau. Put yourself in the position of Israel now. You have just asked the Lord, Lord, how have you loved us? The Lord says, look back. Jacob and Esau were before this period in history. Look back at Jacob and Esau. See the love that I placed upon Jacob that you have known throughout the ages. And then look at what happened to Esau. I have destroyed. I have left him in ruin and in desolation. And yet you question me, the almighty God, about how I have loved you. His care and compassion, his love should be so plainly evident. Jeremiah 49 says this about the Lord's regard for Esau. It says, But I have stripped Esau bare, I have uncovered his hiding places so that he will not be able to conceal himself. His offspring has been destroyed along with his relatives and his neighbors, and he is no more. The Lord's hatred is destructive. It brings to ruin. You say, that's an extreme hatred, but the next idea is that the Lord's hatred is perfectly, perfectly just. I think we see that in verse 4. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down. Edom are the descendants of Esau. They said, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. But thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked Territory with whom the Lord is indignant forever. The Lord's hatred is just. Do you see the wickedness of these people? The Lord has already declared, I tore you down. I brought you low. I have brought this upon you as part of your condemnation for your sin. And they say, well, we will rebuild. We will take what you've torn down and we will build it back up. That's pure and utter wickedness. The Lord's hatred of that is just, and it's righteous, and it's good. Again, Romans 9, the, the clay has no right to come up against the potter. The thing being made has no right to question its creator. And yet Edom says, Lord, you've torn down, but we are going to rebuild. And this is not like some naturally occurring disaster where you know, they just had the misfortune of being having their house knocked over by a tornado or something. This is the Lord bringing utter ruin as a response to their sin. And they say, you've ruined, but we will rebuild. You can, you can do what you wish, Lord, but we will not repent. We will remain in our sin. We will rebuild our lands, and we will continue headlong into that sin. This is the heart of man. Is it not? Always pushing against the authority and the plans and the purposes of the Lord. So we've seen the Lord's hatred. It's personal, it's destructive, it's just, and it's eternal. It is eternal. These are the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. He's not indignant for the rest of their lives. He's indignant forever. His hate is eternal. His condemnation is eternal. you say, why does the Lord hate so greatly? Ezekiel 35, 9 would inform us. The Lord says there, I will make you an everlasting desolation and your cities will not be inhabited. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I will tear down... I will destroy, your cities won't be inhabited, and then you know that I am the Lord. I show you my great power to declare and to display myself, my glory, my righteousness, my holiness, my power, my destruction and condemnation of sin. When the Lord does that, he shows himself. So this is not a dictator Ruling in some unjust way. This is the holy God of all things, eternally ruining and destroying sinners. And it's just and it's right. And so, again, how do we think of that? How do we respond to that? We come back, I think, to a similar idea that we've discussed. You think about the Lord's holy hatred. And how do you respond in anything but humble and holy submission to the Lord? Really, there's so many things about the Lord that the only appropriate response is holy and humble submission. He shows His power. He shows His holiness. He gives His commands. He shows His love. To all those things, we respond by submitting to Him, by submitting to His plans and His purposes, submitting to His rules and regulations and commands and His words and His precepts. We keep our way pure by keeping it and guarding it by and according to His word. If the Lord has shown you grace, respond with holy, devoted submission. The Lord does not deal lightly with sin, but He calls us to glorify Him as we see His dealings with sin. And we see that proper response in verse five. We can consider this under the heading of humble, glorifying faith. The Lord says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. The people see the desolation of Esau and Edom and they say, the Lord be magnified, the Lord be considered great, the Lord be glorified beyond our borders. And that's actually a common response to the Lord's destructive power in the Old Testament. Psalm 58.10 says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the Lord's vengeance against evil. The righteous will rejoice when the Lord tears down the wicked. Ezekiel 39, in verses 21 and 22, the Lord promised to destroy the invaders of Israel. And there the Lord's word says, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, in my hand which I have laid on them, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Holy, humble submission, a life given to glorify the Lord. That is our response. It is a divine electing love, to his holy, condemning hate. The only proper response, when we consider the glorious doctrine of election, when we consider maybe broadening out in the, the doctrine of predestination, Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have hated, there's but one response. And it's to magnify the name of the Lord. Are we a people who are passionate about the glory of God? Psalm 33, 1 says, Praise is becoming to the upright. Praise is the proper and the fitting thing to put on, to showcase as one who is of upright heart. Is your life devoted to the worship and the praise and the glory of the Lord? You know his eternal favor in Christ. How do you respond? What response do you give to the love of God? The Lord has shown you His faithful love, and we ought, dare not question His faithfulness or His love, but rather we respond in faithful devotion of our own. And that devotion is a devotion that is worked out in the power of the Holy Spirit, for we cannot achieve proper devotion to the Lord on our own, but it is something that we must strive after. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work hard. We discipline our bodies. We bring them into submission. Not because we have a set of rules to follow, but we have a glorious King to serve. So ask yourself do I desire that the Lord be magnified? Would I say with Israel, the Lord, be magnified beyond the border of Israel when I see the desolation that the Lord brings, the condemnation that the Lord brings to the lost? If you don't say that, you need to check and examine your heart. May we be a people who humbles ourselves under the mighty hand of God. May we clothe ourselves in humility toward the Lord and toward one another, because when we do that, at the right time, He will exalt us. When He calls us to glory, we will put on the imperishable. We will receive eternally unfading crowns of glory, and for the rest of eternity, our focus will be the praise of the glorious grace of God. So, may we walk in such a way to please and to magnify the Lord among ourselves and beyond these doors in our community and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. For, Lord, we need your instruction, we need your correction, and we need your reproof through the word. We need your spirit to move and to work powerfully in us, your people, Lord, we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would cause us to always desire, always long for your glory. Would you fix and turn our eyes to Christ? May we not be like Israel. May we learn from the past mistakes of your people, not being temporarily focused, but looking to the great hope that is ours in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your faithful, unmerited love, love displayed at the cross. What beautiful and terrible cross it is where our redemption was earned. May we live our lives in light of the price paid for our sin and the glorious Savior who paid that price. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.